welcome to the Light Gate. Uh, we've got a really great show for you tonight, so I'm going to get things moving pretty quick here. Um, we are coming to you live from the beautiful city of New Orleans in Louisiana at the United Public Radio uh, Network at 105.3 FM and the UFO Paranormal Radio Network at 107.7 FM. We are on Roku, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and many other platforms. Those of you who cannot see us because you're listening to us by radio, we have a lot of pictures tonight, and we're going to describe as much as we can to you. We're going to give you a really good mental picture of what we're saying and doing. Take it away, Preston. <laughs> Thank you, Dolly. Super excited about tonight's show. This is episode 32 of The Lightgate. Can you believe it? I am your host, Preston yeah. Dennett, author and researcher, and my lovely co-host, Dolly Safran is a lifelong contactee and the subject of my book, Symmetry. We are so excited to have you joining us tonight on episode 32 of The Light Gate. Wow, how time flies, huh, Dolly? Amazing. It does fly. It's flying very rapidly. You're right. Okay, and we have a lot of wonderful, familiar faces joining us tonight in chat. So I really want to thank you guys, as always, for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Hello, Rat Food and Doxy. Hello, Dawn. Very happy you could join us, Mike. And hello, Brian Morgan. Definitely almost time to saddle up for another badass ep. And that's as good <laughs> swearing yeah. as we're allowed to do. <laughs> Not allowed to swear. <laughs> But thank you so much, Raul, for the super generous super chat. It's truly appreciated, and I'm absolutely humbled and delighted by your generosity. Thank you so, so much. You too, namaste. It doesn't go unnoticed. I cannot thank you enough. All my love to you and everyone else here joining us. Christopher Harmon, hello. Hi, Ruth Kleiber, girl in the desert. Nice to see you here. Michael Kennedy, hope you're doing well. Nice to see you here. And Catherine Fourfeathers, hope you are doing well too. Lou Easy, lots of familiar faces. Hello, Janice. So nice to see you as well. Zisan and Guy Merritt and all you lovely people. Liana King, Central Wisconsin. Hello, oh, hi, Susan. As you all know, Susan was a former guest on The Light Gate and has a nice long chapter in my book, Humanoids and High Strangeness. Shameless plug. Book is doing really well. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. Um, hello, Jacques, all the way from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Very cool. I wish I could get my French in order. I used to be able to speak it really well. Um, let's see who else we have here. Star Orchid, Crystal Cheek, Chic, Crystal Chic. I think I got that right. Linda Catlett, hello. Good to see you too. Kimberly Mathias, John P. Adventures. Well, I better get started because I could say hi to you guys all day. And I have a super interesting and very exciting guest that I've wanted to connect with for a very long time. Yes. And that is, of course... Raymond Zemanski. So we're super happy to welcome him tonight to the show. And let me just tell you a little bit about him from his bio. He is a four-decade U.S. government senior scientist 
turned paranormal researcher and author with his book, 50 Shades of Braids. I love that. Raymond takes you inside the top secret holy grail of ufology, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, to look at alien visitation possibilities that have never been previously explored. And if you know anything about UFOs or have been in this field for any length of time, you know about Wright-Patterson. So Raymond's interest in extraterrestrials and their connection to Wright-Pat was ignited, get this, during his first week of government employment by a mentor who eventually earned promotion to the exclusive ranks of the Senior Executive Surf Service. So this intriguing backstory and many revelatory adventures are presented as Raymond investigates his way through the UFO ET phenomenon, transforming from a curious skeptical researcher to a firm believer in the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I know that feeling really, but I know it well. Relying on decades of professional experience, Raymond does his own research, investigating available facts and theories all the way to the ground, trusting yet verifying. So he is a very careful and thorough researcher, and the result is an exclusive first-person adventure story described in a fast-reading narrative illustrated by never-before-published photographs. The truth is definitely in there, Fifty Shades of Greys. This first book is followed up by the second book, Alien Shades of Greys, Victoria's Secret Truth. This is the second nonfiction book in the Alien Shades of Greys trilogy. And this one is an in-depth case study of a lifelong multi-generational contact with unidentified visitors. So the fast-paced narrative in Victoria's Secret Truth is beautifully enhanced by over 60 photographs, which document the corroborative physical evidence and take the reader inside the experiencer's sights. So included in this are revealing transcripts and video captures documenting Victoria's four hypnotic regressions by three world-class hypnotherapists, including Dr. Leo Sprinkle, Barbara Lamb, and Yvonne Smith. And for you fans of the Lightgate, we'll probably remember we had both Barbara Lamb and Yvonne Smith on prior episodes. So Raymond is also the author of his third book, and I love this title, Swamp Gas, My Ass. <laughs> I love that. Swamp Gas, of course, being the explanation the Air Force, or Jayon Hynek, issued to explain the Hillsdale, Michigan sightings in 1966. And this book is the extraordinary true story of two highly decorated U.S. Air Force fighter interceptor pilots fully enmeshed in America's hidden military history, and together they intercepted the world-famous 1966 Michigan Swamp Gas UFOs in supersonic F-106 jets. It's a history-changing story, denied, no surprise there, by our government, but told here for the very first time. So we all have quite a treat in store tonight, and let's just bring Raymond onto the stage. There he is. Hey, Raymond. Hello, Raymond. Welcome. Howdy, folks. <laughs> quite an illustrious biography and resume you got there. Very, very cool. Well, some <laughs> of it was even true. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, it's so awesome to see you here, because as we were talking about before the show, we've kind of been circling around each other and missing trying to meet up at various conferences, which are always so busy and crazy. <laughs> so I get it. 
partly my fault because I've been so swamped. But how oh, is that? That's a plug for the book. Thank you. <laughs> it is actually, huh? <laughs> so yeah, it's so so awesome to finally connect with you, and I can't wait to hear all your adventures. Very well, cool. I want to. Well, I want to start. I know you have a starting question, but I want to share this with your audience because uh, it's a personal story. It's not always about research and finding that little tidbit. But um, I was really, you know, there's a lot of my influences when I got started on what I was doing. But um, uh, Preston's book, UFOs Over Topanga Canyon, was one of those that was really a, a seminal moment for me reading it. So being the hands-on researcher that I am, uh, I found myself out on the West Coast and said, well, this is perfect. So I tried to get together with Preston, but he was busy or working or doing whatever. So I took his book and kind of used it as a strange Goonies kind of map uh, to <laughs> guide me through Topanga Canyon. And um, one of the things I did is, is I like to stop into the local libraries and meet the locals, pick their brains about something. And um, I went in there to see if they had a copy of his book, a local one that I could refer to. And the lady, you know, she kind of says, oh, yeah, Preston. And she wow. was acting like she knew him. And uh, so I said, oh, you, you know Preston? She goes, I was one of his grade school teachers. <gasps> You're kidding. And I went, no. And, and I was, what? And somewhere in my notebooks, I have her name. And I said, really? Well, well, you know, now I'm I'm in research mode, and I go, "What was he like?" She goes, "He was a very precocious child." Oh, <laughs> wow! Okay. So, so that was my first that was my first uh, connection uh, to Preston was actually by accident finding one of his grade school teachers in the library <laughs> of all places. That's insane. Wow. That would have to be either Miss Horka or Miss Titus, Mrs. Wallace, Mr. Russo, Miss Briscoe. It was a lady. It was a lady. Hmm. But I, I have some somewhere in my notes, my, in my files on Topanga Canyon uh, is, wow. is is her name. I'm sure it's written down somewhere. But I just wanted to kick it off with that. So finally, you know, here we are face to face, kind of. Wow, that's amazing. I can't believe one of my teachers actually remembers me. <laughs> I was kind of a wallflower. <laughs> <laughs> that is very cool. All right, I'm a little, what's the word, verklempt. <laughs> <laughs> It's a small universe. Yes, very, very cool. Well, that's that must have been really. Gosh, I'm so sorry we didn't. Hook it up. was neat. It was a really a neat moment. All right. Wow. Okay. Phew. Well, Raymond, um, how I usually like to start the show, as I mentioned <laughs> to you, is I'm always curious as to how people got involved in this field and what it was like for them growing up, and were they skeptical, and have they ever had experiences as a kid, and very curious about how this all rolled out for you. Um, it actually rolled out uh, kind of the way I laid it out in uh, Fifty Shades of Grays. And, and that is, it was uh, the first week I'm working at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I had been assigned a mentor. He was a mid-level engineer, like a GS-11 or 12 at the time. And about the first week uh, near the end, he says, hey, um, I would like to take you to the other office building. Now at the time, and it still exists today, but that was my first assignment. I was on a cooperative education assignment from the University of Detroit where I would go to Wright-Patterson for four months and 
learn what they do. And then I would go back to school for four months. And then I would go back to Wright-Patterson until I had served three, four-month cooperative education uh, placements there at Wright-Pat. So this first week, he said, come on, I'm going to take you to the other side of the hangar. So there was uh, two buildings, and in between of about 250 feet was a large unused airplane hangar. I mean, we're on the Air Force Base. So on, on uh, the east side of the building was a large two-story office building, and then the 250-foot of dark, very dark hangar. And then on the other side, another a very large two-story office building, which contained uh, what they called the greasy spoon. It was just kind of a coffee shop. So we stepped from our building into this empty uh, hangar, which is now the Wright Field Fitness Center, by the way, and a hub of activity. But back then there was nobody there. It was just nothing, empty cobwebs, maybe a few mice running around, dark curtains. So we walked on this real small ramp, tiny little ramp, and and we stepped down, and he turns to me, and he says, have you heard about our aliens? <laughs> Just like that. Wow. I, you know, out of the blue, and I'm this cooperative education student, electrical engineering is what I got my bachelor's degree in eventually. So I, you know, I was all ears. This is the guy I'm supposed to follow around like a sick puppy for the next four months. He <laughs> says, yeah, um, you know, uh, you hear about our aliens. And I looked at him. No. He says, well, you know, uh, decades ago, there was a crash out west and uh, they brought their machines and occupants here to Wright-Patterson for evaluation and exploitation. Well, you know, then we're walking. We've got like the 250 feet of fame going here because we're heading towards the other door. And I'm like, well, you know, tell me about these aliens. Well, yeah, they brought these aliens here and they brought the crash wreckage here. And I said, well, can we see these aliens? And he goes, well, no. I said, well, why not? Well, they're a secret. <laughs> well, Al, if they're a secret, how do you know about it? <laughs> well, the whole base kind of know, knows about it. And what he was getting at was uh, eventually what I was to discover in the days, weeks, and months to follow by talking to a lot of different people. Project Blue Book had only folded at Wright-Pedison Air Force Base in 1969, and their doors formally closed in January of 1970. So I show up a mere three years later in January of 1973. Wow. So, yeah, this connection to Wright-Patterson and you know, flying saucers is well known by everybody on base. And if you weren't there previous you're soon brought up to speed on this, like Al was bringing me up to speed. And that's where it all started for me as far as being curious about everything like this. So at that point, did you believe in UFOs or were you completely skeptical? What was your, I mean, that's a bombshell for sure to drop on somebody. I, I had a lot more important things to uh, worry about, like, how can I save enough money to pay the next semester's tuition? Am I going to have to eat bologna, bologna sandwiches for lunch every day to do it? And the answer was yes. Now, do you have to count every nickel? The answer was yes. It was kind of a tough, it was very tough path ahead. So, I mean, even though I had some scholarship money, uh, every year the tuition went up and, you know, there were other expenses. So it, it turns out that 
it just wasn't a, a top of my priority list, but that didn't keep me from keeping my ears and eyes open and, you know, talking to, um, you know, a, a guy in accounting or somebody else that I ran across in, in uh, HR or other places around the base and say, hey, you know, my mentor told me, and it was always like, yeah, of course, everybody knows that, you know, we've got aliens in the tunnels. And uh, so that concept was widely known everybody absolutely every and to this day you know you can call up any office and go hey where are the aliens they'll joke with you oh yeah they're in the tunnels wow that's kind of a weirdly open secret you know <laughs> that's you know what, what I mean? al was trying to tell me <laughs> <laughs> wow so i would think that it would be you know we don't talk about that we don't talk about you know this sort of stuff but they all just kind of cats out of the bag it's really hard to put him back in and they would just allow it, I think, you know, just to keep it from becoming bigger than it is. Right. Really, I mean, if they start denying it, that would really put people onto them. Like, we know they're there, you know. Everybody just accepted it. It was common knowledge. And the way that I know that it's it's still there is because I know people who work on base. I've been retired like 10 years, but uh, I have uh, my son's friends work there. I mean, I, I live, you know, only a very short uh, ride from there. And in fact, one of them, are you familiar with the foreign technology division? Um, They're well, the ones who ran Project Blue Book. Right. Yeah. The foreign technology. Well, one of my son's friends who no longer works there did work there. And um, he was over uh, visiting my son, like right after uh, they had both gotten out of college. And that was one of his first jobs was to work at FTD. And he told me the story, uh, this, my son's friend, that they were redoing uh, some of the vent work in the building in FTD. And when this friend asked his mentor, what's going on, where the noise is coming from, he said, don't worry, that's just the aliens trapped in the walls. <laughs> wow. That's so it, go, it goes on today. <laughs> All right. Well, I know you can't discuss your security clearance level, but if you could talk about how your career kind of developed there, that I think would be very interesting. As a co-op student, uh, you're assigned to a mentor, generally somebody who's mid to more senior level. So and when you're a co-op, they want you to move offices. So, you know, I started in like a um, an office that required a lot of computer science -y background. Uh, they did a lot of things where they were developing uh, timekeeping systems for the Air Force and that sort of thing. So it was a, more of a management kind of IT thing. And then um, the next co-op session, I, I worked in a vault. And... They were developing um, satellite technology. So the senior engineer would design a board, give me the schematic, and I literally brought the thing to life like my own Frankenstein. So I laid the board out. Uh, I, I printed the board, a hard printed circuit card. I drilled all the holes. I mounted all the components. I pre-tested it and then gave it to the senior engineer. And in that vault, he put it on a power supply, grabbed his master uh, because there was a test rig that they had hooked up in order and a signal generator and some other things. And they fired that puppy up. He twisted one potentiometer, which is a variable resistor, 
and it sprung to life and I was a hero. <laughs> and and so that was that was like the things you do when when you're a co-op student or maybe the first couple of years. So it kind of progressed like that. And then, you know, early on they would uh, give me a a board, which they would not tell me where it came from. It would come out of some component, be something like you'd see in a transistor radio or your stereo or or a nuclear bomb. Uh, I'm joking. I'm joking. But <laughs> They would give you a board and say, all right, well, we don't know what this does because, you know, maybe it's double layer or it's two sided, but they would give that to you. And then you would draw the schematic. So it's a you're going backwards now before you build yeah. the boards. Now you're going to look at a board and you're going to uh, make oh. it so that they can just read it by looking at a schematic and, and they can a senior guy could figure out relatively quickly based on perhaps uh, if that wasn't the only board and where they got it from, comparing it to the other schematics and they could quickly analyze that circuitry. So you, you know, you kind of do that kind of thing. Uh, and then eventually, you know, you're off the bench and you're, you're running programs, you're solving Air Force problems that you might be able to solve given enough time and money, but there's not enough time and money to do it, so you have to hire contractors. And you develop a statement of work and you go through all this contracting magic. And then eventually you bring a team on that will solve this problem, whatever it is. Maybe it's building a board or a circuit to do something for them. So the, that's kind of the early progression. Wow, it sounds super fascinating. You must have been learning an awful lot. <laughs> you were pretty young then, huh? Uh, yeah, I think I graduated college around 21, 22. Oh, wow. Okay. Amazing. That must have been mind-blowing to work there. But at this point, the ET whole thing is still kind of just in the periphery, huh? You're like, huh, <laughs> but too busy with work. Yeah, and I think I never really gave up searching because, you know, you're – uh, meeting a lot of people, you're going to a lot of meetings, you're going into a lot of buildings all the time. So you're always kind of looking around and you go, oh, wh why is that vault door there? That doesn't make sense that it's there. Or, you know, you're in the tunnels, but the tunnels are, for the most part, they're running utilities, steam pipes, electrical, that sort of thing. Uh, there are many building complexes that have tunnels that connect them one to another and they're they're for pedestrians in fact Wright State University Wright State University where I did my graduate work in computer engineering wow. the entire campus is connected underground by tunnels every building you can go from any building to any other building on that campus via a tunnel hmm. And it's beautiful. You know, you come out there in the wintertime, cold, snowy day, and you go, oh, it's one o'clock. Classes are changing. Where is everybody? They're mm -hmm. all underground, moving to the next class. So the fact that Wright-Patterson has tunnels shouldn't surprise anybody because you have that same kind of thing. You have connections uh, in between buildings. Um, you have um, cafeterias down there, for example. You know, you have vaults down there as most buildings will have vaults. So it shouldn't be a surprise that, that we have tunnels. Now, I've never seen an alien in one of those tunnels or in one of the vaults, <laughs> but that's where everybody thinks they are. Wow, amazing.
Okay, so you know Wright Patterson, of course, has this amazing reputation in this field. And if you study the UFO crash retrievals, like Roswell, of course, and many of the others, their trails kind of end up leading to Wright Patterson. And of course, this is where they do study foreign technology, if I'm correct, from other countries. So I, I'm assuming you looked really deeply into the whole history of all of this. And, I was hoping you could kind of lay that out a little bit. Well, the Foreign Technology Division, now called NASIC, they're tasked with recovering things that fall from the sky and trying to determine where they came from. Were they ours and somehow just got left in the desert for decades or got jettisoned, you know, on a aborted test mission? Are they theirs, you know, the people that you know, we commonly cross swords with, or are they, you know, theirs? Uh, and the fact is, you know, as a researcher, you know that if you dig long enough, hard enough, deep enough, you will find some answers. And with respect to the Foreign Technology Division, if you look at the testimony, I believe it was 1978, Major Jesse Marcel, who was discovered by our friend Stanton Friedman and went, went on the record to say some of the following. I'll just paraphrase him. He said, the material that we picked up outside Corona, New Mexico, was not of this earth. And we did some cursory tests on it. We tried to cut it, bend it, break it, burn it, scratch it. When we folded it up, it came back to its original shape. And he went on the record as saying, not of this earth, but he also said, we took that material to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. That, that's immutable that it went to Wright-Patterson. And then um, the guy whose name I always forget, he was chief of staff, he was a colonel, um, but uh, he was General Ramey's chief of staff at the 8th Army Air Corps in Fort Worth. And that's place where the Roswell crash wreckage flew on an interim basis. Then they brought Marcel in, showed him the wreckage. He said, yeah, this is it. Then they moved him to another room with a crashed weather balloon and brought the photographer into that room and told Jesse, shut the up. And Jesse said, okay, so if you look at those photographs, you can see Marcel is like, he's looking up his eyeballs are like, man, you're going to be kidding me. This isn't the stuff I just brought in. <laughs> and the photographer went, snap, 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 snap. But the chief of staff uh, of that office, who also handled the crash, crash records, he signed a legal affidavit. And he said he agreed, like parroted exactly what Marcel said. Yeah, we brought it in. We did those cursory tests, band cut. No, couldn't do that. Squash it. No. It wasn't of this earth. And oh, by the way, it went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So you have two immutable testimonials from two of the people that actually handled that. They said it went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, why would they take it there? Mm. Why not? It's proximity. Think about that. Seriously consider it's, what it's it what? Proximity. I'm sorry? proximity. You are Out not traveling. There's an East Coast and there's a West Coast. Yes. People with unbelievable minds on the East Coast and not on the West. They would travel back and forth, but they needed approximate space between them 
to walk in and walk out unseen. It is always proximity, always. Well, in this case, in this mm -hmm. case, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base had a materials laboratory right. that had been established in 1917. So oh, yes. for the better part of 30 years, some of the leading aerospace materials experts in the world were at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Right. They, they also had equipment, secrecy oaths, vaults, barbed wire fences, guards at the fences, money to buy expertise if they didn't have the exact experts or the equipment. So they had everything they needed to look at this crash wreckage. And what do we know about the crash wreckage? Well, the biggest piece ever described was only two and a half foot long. Most of it was in a thousand pieces, about one inch by one inch square. So what would they have done? They've thrown some of those one inch squares in a suitcase or briefcase really, strapped it to some guy's wrist, got it on a little flight into Dayton, Ohio, flew it right into the base, took it to the materials director and on a prearranged appointment, opened up the briefcase and said, look it, we're gonna give you several months to look at this. All your experts, poke it, burn it, cut it, whatever you want to do. Use all that fancy equipment you have. And after X number of months, you give us a report and you tell us what you think this is. Right. Case closed. No one ever see him coming, never see him going. They would get one or two copies of the report, swear everybody to secrecy. So Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was really at that time the only place that could do the level of testing that was required. Right. It, I'm telling you, it was a deliberate act to bring that base into life in 1917. They thought long and hard about where to put that base. They needed a place that was safe. They needed it to be uh, isolated. They needed to be able to be near everything they could get, come for, and bring back out of. Right, Patterson is the number one military army base in this country, and it is solidly the number one base in this country for all technology and all everything. It is the mental hub of everything. And it has been that way for a long time. Even presidents way back in, during the wars would go there just to be safe. Not kidding. So how big is Wright-Patterson? Well, as a small correction, it's not an army base. It's an Air Force base. It so. is now. It was a military army first in 1917. Look it up. It was an army base. Well, it was actually a depot. And, and yeah. actually, it... it to be, to be correct, the Army Air Corps was a single entity until right. September of 1947, right. and then they separated into yeah. uh, the Air Force and the Army. Right. They took the flyboy stuff away from them. Right. How big is Wright-Patterson? Uh, Wright-Patterson is over 8,000 acres and over right. 600 buildings, right. and it separated... Originally, it was separated into four little distinct geographical areas, areas A, B, C, and D. Um, but just recently, you know, they've been, for security purposes, after 9-11, they decided to join two parts of the base that were geographically separated by a four-lane uh, road. So they they 
move that road around. And now uh, areas A and C are one area. They're now called area A. So I have area A and B. But they really didn't, they didn't lose any buildings. Uh, and they really didn't lose any acreage. But over 8,000 acres, uh, they have two 18-hole golf courses and one nine-hole golf course, I might add, uh, which is really cool. super. Yeah. But, wow. but um, it's, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. All right. Wow. Very interesting. So I'm not sure if you covered this or not, but this is one of your talking points. So as an engineer at the base, were you ever involved in reverse engineering? You kind of alluded to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was a co-op student at the time and they probably thought, well, he's too dumb to be dangerous. So, uh, and I talked about eating bologna sandwiches every day for lunch. To help avoid that, I um, did work some overtime. They just wanted some guys that had shown some skills. And they said, here are these printed circuit cards with some circuitry on it. And we want you to go ahead and create us a schematic. So for several weekends during one of my co-op sessions, never learned where the board came from. You know, it was small. You know, there were several of these, maybe two and a half inches wide by uh, maybe four and a half, five inches long, and just a circuit card just filled with resistors, capacitors, inductors, that sort of thing. And um, they paid us overtime because we came in on the weekend and did it. And they wanted us to come in on the weekend because they didn't want anybody seeing what we were doing. So they sequestered us in a room and sat out front and read a, a magazine or did whatever they did at that time. Did you so, like yeah, I, I, I did some of that. Did you do that for eight hours on the weekends? Like one whole day or? I, I think, uh, yeah, for the most part, I remember uh, eating lunch there a couple times, just grabbing a bologna sandwich for lunch. And mm -hmm. uh, usually usually it was about five or six hours, you know, and then you, you pretty much had enough. And, you know, if you finish a board, they, you know, would go out somewhere and bring you another one to start on. All right. Or you would go over. Sure. Yeah, you'd go over step by step. You know, if they had a question, they, they could ask it to you. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Preston. Now, I want to pop up a question here from someone in chat, which is kind of an interesting question because he's asking, did you ever meet Colonel Corso? Colonel Corso, of course, being the author of The Day After Roswell and making quite a few claims about how we, a guy's got integrated circuits and fiber optics and Kevlar and night vision goggles from the Roswell crash. So, what do you think of his story, and did you ever meet him? I did not meet him, uh, regrettably. I um, did read his book, The Day After Roswell. In fact, I was in Florida doing some research and just said, hey, are there any interesting meetings? And a Florida MUFON group was having a meeting the week I was there. So uh, I'm going to get her name wrong. Uh, Terry Keel something or other, or Terry something Keel. That's close. Yeah. It is cute. It's close. It's yeah. close. But Paola Harris was there and her talk was on Colonel Corso and she had some of her interview videos with him, which I thought was very, very interesting. So the closest I got was watching some of the personal uh, video interviews that Paula had done with uh, Colonel Corso. Yeah. I read his book, of course. I thought found it really compelling and I know there are people who've tried to debunk him, but his credentials are unimpeachable. 
So I think it's important to listen to what he has to say. I tried to look back to you know who actually invented invest invented the integrated circuit and fiber optics and all that. And it appears to have a prosaic origin, but he says, no, 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 it was very cleverly um, integrated into their studies and inventions. So I, I really wonder about that and all the- Wasn't there a movie star who uh, used integrated circuits during World War II? She's famous for it. She built the, one of the first something or others, I can't think of it right now, but she designed it, the circuits herself. I really don't know. I'll have to look that up. I have to look that up. Okay. Well, the interesting part is, is that as best I can remember, Bell Labs was working on the transistor. And in 1947, that summer, they had a very crude transistor made with which it looks absolutely stone age compared to even the earliest transistors. But the story goes that uh, I don't know how much you know about uh, microcircuits uh, or, you know, their fabrication, <laughs> but but let me just kind of lay this out in, in layman's terms. You have basically a, um, a, a silicon, we'll call it a wafer, and this wafer is doped with certain chemicals. And the way a transistor works is that if you have a control signal, a control a control voltage and current, and you put a signal through this transistor by changing the control voltage and current, you create a perfect recreation of the input signal, like a radio signal, and it gets amplified. So that's the way a transistor works. It takes a signal, you have power connected to it, and out the back end is the same signal, except at a much higher amplitude. So the story is that Bell Labs couldn't quite get the doping correct. Now, in integrated circuits uh, ease, the doping is a, a chemical that you, you embed the silicon with that allows you to do that control. And the story is that when they recovered some of the stuff from the Roswell crash, it was sent by Corso to Bell Labs and they looked at it. And I believe that's part of the book. Um, they looked at it and said, oh, we've got the doping wrong for our transistor. We need to dope it with like arsenic or germanium or something like that. We, we, we're using the wrong doping. And once they figured it out by reverse engineering, months later, Bell Lab comes out with the first successful transistor. I really haven't explored Colonel Corso and his claims. But if you really, really, really wanted to do that, the first thing you have to do if it's not available now is to get Colonel Corso's DD-214. Get a copy of his official military records if they're not out there. I don't remember if they were in a book or not. I don't think so. That will tell you everywhere he was during his military career. That would prove that he was at headquarters, for example, where he says he was. And it will usually show you what office. You know, it'll say uh, chief of staff or, you know, the undersecretary of defense for gobbledygook. So if you got his DD-214 <laughs> or, or whatever the official record of his military career was, that's what you need. And, and that would be, that would give you very solid proof of, could he have handled this stuff? 
There's an interesting factoid that I know. Um, Missouri had a lot of military records of all these guys in the military, in the army, my father's being one of them. And they burned down an entire building complex with everybody's records in them. I think they it would be did. kind of hard. I think it would conveniently, be kind of hard. <laughs> conveniently, most <laughs> of the people, conveniently, most of the people who served in 1947. Yes, exactly. You're right. Yep. Yeah, so good luck to anybody looking for that. I don't think they're going to find it. The family, the family would have copies of his DD two fourteen. They would. It would be, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every guy, every guy has multiple copies of his DD two fourteen. I have my dad's too. I have my dad's. Uh, I have his full record. So yeah. Uh -huh. Now well, the thing about Colonel Corso, which is so true, it's so many what I would call whistleblowers, is they wait till they're right there at the golden years of their life. <laughs> decide, you know what, I'm going to take that chance and I'm going to tell what I know. But they only have a short time to do it. And before you know it, they've passed on. I've had the wonderful opportunity to talk to a few whistleblowers, one who was literally in the hospital um, soon to pass away, and he did. So unfortunately, we can't go to Colonel Corso anymore because he did pass on not too long after his book was published, like so many. I, I did talk to, this was really cool, actually, uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. And I, I had, along with Dr. J. Elias, one of the last interviews he did, which was really poignant. Wow. Um. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. So now that's fabulous. That's a great yeah. memory. So speaking of Roswell, what do you know about the famous Hangar 18 um, or the... Roswell material was supposedly stored. Well, now <laughs> we're, we're skipping to the end. We're skipping to the end of this, inter okay. skipping to the end of this interview. Um, we'll bring it up again. Uh, there's going to be, I'm part of an organizing group that is putting together a UFO conference to be held 2021 20, and 22 September of next year at the Hope Hotel and Conference Center located on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. No way. Really? Oh, cool. Wait, wait. If you, <laughs> if, you, if you jump on my Facebook, I announced it just last week. Um, there is a name for it, and I'm giving you an exclusive. The name of the conference is the Hangar 18 UFO Conference at Wright-Patterson. That's Whew. glorious. Wow. It's gorgeous. It's awesome. And... <laughs> And since I am the keynote speaker and the MC, I think it would be appropriate during the keynote speech to reveal Hangar 18. 
Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so all y'all, when we put the tickets up for sale in January, you better get in line. Because yeah. my talk is my talk is going to open up the place on Friday. And I mean, open up the place. Wow. So be, be there if you want to find out. <laughs> well, very cool. Thanks for very the cool. awesome, awesome exclusive. And that's exciting news for sure. Wow. Very, very, very interesting. So uh, but, but for the most part, I'll, I'll give you the pat answer just so I can answer what people are dying to hear. Most people think that Hangar 18 is a notional idea that they, they just needed a concept to hang this on, you know? Yeah. And I think that's very good for the time being for people to think it's a notional idea. But I can tell you that if there was a Hangar 18, I have found it. <laughs> if there was a Hangar 18, I have found it. <laughs> very intriguing. <laughs> very intriguing. And I can prove it. That's the good That's part. Awesome. That's awesome. Yes. Okay. So going back to Wright-Patterson, I assume there was lots of places on the base that were just strictly off limits to people. And were you ever able to locate where you think some of this wreckage was being stored or reverse engineered? And are there bodies there, do you think, actual ET bodies? You know, that's a lot of good questions. And, and let me parse them. Let me go from uh, suspected buildings to bodies. Those are, those are, it's really, that's a brilliant question, Preston. Uh, something I would expect from a precocious child. <laughs> <laughs> now, you all your listeners are going to go, what? <laughs> okay. So, so um, buildings. There is a lot of classified work done at government buildings all around the world. Of course, and yeah. Wright-Patterson is one of those buildings. And of course, there's classified work done there. So there are many security measures put in place. Um, as an example, uh, the building that I worked in uh, had vaults. And inside those vaults were vaults. And I don't know how far nested they go. but despite the fact that I was in a, a singular building on assignments, you know, like a five-year assignment, a six, another six-year assignment, whatever, 20 years, there were places in that building that the only place I saw was like the third vault door forward. You, you literally never saw anything past the hallway because it wasn't your area you were working in. You weren't working with these people they would not talk to you. In some cases, they would be in there and they would not be people. You know, I worked in that building for decades. I knew everybody and everybody knew me. So when there was a new face that would walk into one of these, you know, triple vaults uh, and they were an outsider, um, you knew that something special was going on that you would never learn about. So there's always that kind of thing. And I'm not trying to say it's nefarious. It's just that, you know, when you're working on stuff and, and maybe it's technology, you know, maybe it's uh, new security stuff, whatever it is, uh, a new IT things, you know, you got to protect your resources. There's a lot of security that goes on. And so even if you're within a building, that doesn't mean there's not things that are buried deep or underground or in tunnels. Uh, and yeah, there are some buildings that, um, you know, I would say there's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of buildings there that just to get in the front door, you have to have a pass. 
Okay. And then there are probably buildings that are more restricted. Once you get into the hallway, then all the offices are in vaults and then you need another thing. And then inside of that, you need another. And, you know, you got a cluster of things on your body, you know, your eyeballs to get in, whatever it takes. <laughs> so, so that's, and that's just common, I think, across uh, every government that you would ever visit. They have those kinds of facilities. So, um, you know, do I know what all those buildings are? Of course not. You know, there's no, I don't think there's any obvious or flagrant signs like, hey, you know, this is the place where all the best <laughs> secrets are kept. But I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure they're there. Amazing. So you think it's probably just little pieces of craft, not like a whole complete craft? Let me go back to your aliens question, part of the, the first <laughs> question. Right. Okay. I've always been fuzzy on the aliens issue. And here's why. If you look at Marcel and you look at the other guy, again, I apologize to the guy who retired as a general. And maybe it's just age showing. I used to know all these names and their birth dates. DuBose? And, and, Would that be it? Yeah, I think it, uh, there was DuBose. It was DuBose. Yes. General DuBose was chief of staff for the Eighth uh, Army Air Corps. You must be younger than me, Preston. It is. It was DuBose. And um, in their affidavits, they never mentioned aliens. You can go back to it. And Marcel, Major Marcel, never mentioned aliens. Those things came when some of the investigators, and I'll use that term loosely, started, <laughs> started to look at Roswell. And then suddenly aliens appeared. And, you know, it's only stories. You know, we know for a fact, a fact, that Marcel and DuBose handled the wreckage. Indisputable, immutable. Right. There is not one shred of evidence that anybody handled or saw any aliens in Roswell. And I'm sure the Schmitz and the Randalls and the Carries of the world are going to come down hard, but there is no evidence, not one shred. Thank not, you. There's You're the not, first person I've heard in this whole thing that has said anything like that. And I commend you for it because I have two reasons for believing they didn't really find a body. Tell us. Is, um, it's the law of physics. When you have a vehicle that breaks up into tiny little pieces, uh, there will only be tiny little pieces of whatever was inside. Yes, of course. Okay. So that's reason number one. All right. Uh, reason number two is, is that it would have caused in their minds, a biological hazard so big, they would not have been able to contain it because everybody would have been dead terrified to go near them or have anything to do with them. It is not what you think, okay? This is uh, a, a possible being from another world, extraterrestrial, who God only knows what's in their veins or going on with them. And, you know, here's a military brat right here talking to you, okay? In the military myself, all right? Uh, hazmat is a big deal. And 
Lots of people don't realize this, but when you have an enemy and you take them, they could be ingesting something or taking something that makes them biologically dangerous to you on the spot, especially if they're dying, they'll do it. And that is part of warfare. Okay. And they are so paranoid. They wouldn't have gone near those bodies. It would have been that big of a deal. Um, I don't so, know. Yeah. I, I'm kind of on the other side of the fence there, guys. Because, <laughs> you know, Glenn Dennis, of course, made his... I will admit, this is purely anecdotal. There's no real paper trail. But even Walter Hout, who gave, of course, the famous press release, later said, you know, I saw them too. He said he saw the bodies. Truly, it is anecdotal, and it's so frustrating. Because this is possibly the best evidence we well, have. Well, then there was more than one craft. And they're not talking about it. Well, That's the only thing in my mind that could have Roswell, the outer peel apparently came yeah. out on Brazel's Ranch and it went over the Capitan Mountains and crashed in the San Augustine Plains. Huh? According that to would be the second the vehicle account. then maybe. I don't know. I, I think that there were probably not in the one was Jesus, There's no way. <laughs> but I agree. No as far as a paper trail or clear yeah. evidence, we don't have it. Did, did any, has any military ranking, it doesn't have to be ranking, is there has there ever been a military member who can prove that they were in Roswell at the time and maybe part of a first responder group that said they saw? You know, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we're talking specifically Roswell here. And it, I, here's the evidence I'd like to see. All right. Show me a receipt for the six caskets or the X number of caskets that you supposedly supplied to Roswell when they called you up, Mr. Dennis. Show me that receipt. Show me the order form. Show me anything that proves that. Did, did, a, did, a, did any major military person step forward who we know was part of this? Did they say, I saw the aliens? Now, you're saying Hout. And... I, I don't ever recall seeing an affidavit signed by Hout that said he saw the aliens. And Preston, if you know of one, I'd love to have a, a pointer to it. Uh, to me, we know the wreckage was there. We know the wreckage was picked up. We know it went to White Patterson Air Force Base. That is part of, of the record. It's, you know, those guys, video interview for Dar uh, Jesse Marcel, uh, a signed affidavit for General DuBose. I just don't have anything strong enough. <laughs> well, I commend you for, you know, you, as a researcher, you have to, you know, sort of follow that everything. Follow every trail. <laughs> the evidence has not led me to that conclusion yeah. yet. Yeah. So. And there, there has to be 50 books on Roswell, and some are directly contradicting each other. And certainly some of these researchers are not, you know, hmm, doing thorough research. Some of them people. made up witnesses for their book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a shame. So, so you know. It, 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 that's just fuzzy. I'm not, I'm not saying it didn't happen because, and the reason I'm saying this is because um, when I wrote Victoria's Secret Truth, I spent two years uh, interviewing the family and uh, interviewing a child who, who was, thank you, the middle book. Uh, it's Victoria's Secret Truth. Oh. And the woman's name is Victoria. I actually got to talk to Victoria's grandson and children basically tell the truth. And I walked this kid through like, you know, two weeks at a time, uh, his scenarios and, and cross-examining everything. Plus I now with the publication of that book have had friends who have held secrets for 40, 50 years after they read my book, 
they contacted me and said, I've got a story I want to tell you. And, and these are hugely professionally accomplished people. Uh, one is, uh, has gone all over the world giving talks, uh, has testified in front of Congress uh, for uh, the area, you know, that, that uh, she knows uh, she's, um, you know, got, got patents and stuff is an experiencer and, and told me and then other people. So there is contact. There are these entities, but I can't place an entity at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base readily. I, I, there's no paper trail for me to, to take it there. I mean, I know the, I know the buildings that they might go to if they were there, uh, but I, you know, I, I, the, the trail has gone cold in, in that respect. All right. Well, we do need to take a quick station ID break. So I want to let you all know that you are watching The Lightgate. I'm your host, Preston Dennett. My lovely co-host is Dolly Safran. Our guest tonight is Raymond Zemanski. And we are streaming live on the United Public Radio Network at 107.7 FM from the beautiful city of New Orleans. Also, the UFO Paranormal Radio Network at 105.3. We're on several other platforms, such as Roku. Check it out. Facebook. And, of course, YouTube. And this is episode 32 of The Lightgate. We are talking to Raymond Szymanski, who has rubbed elbows with many of the leading researchers. Here he is with Barbara Lamb. Here he is with Daryl Sims. And, of course, Lorian Fenton, who runs the UFO Megacon up in the San Francisco area. And look at that. Uh, this guy is super famous. And that, not Leonard Stringfield. Um, help Stanton me out. Friedman. Stanton Friedman. Thank you. <laughs> See, I'm old. Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn Kitai. Kitai? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Kitai? And, of course, Peter Robbins and Tiago Ticetti, who we're trying to get on the show. And look, he has all three of your books. How awesome is that? Pretty and awesome. Here you are at a conference speaking, and looks like you met the Mothman or something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. am, I, am I live? Am I live? Um, uh, the um, One of the, the History Channel tried to get me. It was uh, Expedition X with Josh Gates. I was in the premiere episode of Expedition X, and they called it the Mothman. And I'll tell you an interesting story about that when we when we get back to crazy stuff. All right. We'll get right there. I just wanted to show a few more pictures because you did appear on Ancient Aliens, was it, on the History Channel? I, I did. And it, it was like I felt like a, a brown shoe next to a tuxedo. I mean, they had all the heavy hitters. They had Richard Dolan. They had... Uh, <laughs> Linda Moulton Howe, Nick Pope, you know, and then Ray Shemansky. <laughs> hey, you're in the big leagues now. <laughs> and there's, of course, your three amazing books, which I encourage everyone to check out. They're doing very well, getting very favorable reviews on Amazon. So, okay. Yeah. Tell us about what happened with, what was this? This? Oh, <laughs> uh, Okay. So, so I get a call from, from the production company, uh, some out of New York, and they say, hey, there's this brand new show. We can't tell you what it is, um, but you've come up on our radar, and we want you to be in 
the initial, the inaugural, the, you know, episode. And I said, okay, well, I'm interested, but I've had, you know, when the books come out, you get dozens of those calls, nothing ever comes of it. And <laughs> so I said, I really need to know a lot more because I've wasted a lot of time with your type. And they said, no, 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 this is a Josh Gates thing. We can tell you that. And I'm a big fan of, of Josh. And I knew it had to be legitimate because a couple of years beforehand, I had introduced myself to Josh Gates when he was at the Roswell Museum. Uh, I was an invited guest wow. of Yvonne Smith, and I was. Uh, she allowed me to sell my books at her table during the Roswell week, as mm -hmm. long as when she lunched with her son and his girlfriend, that I would watch her table and sell her books. Mm -hmm. And Josh Gates came in. I had a copy. Had to go up to meet him. I rushed up, introduced myself, you know, autographed it, and thought, well, I'll never hear from him again. And boom, a couple of years later, his production company calls me. So to go ahead, what they wanted me to say, well, they, they asked me first, they said, is there any chance that this Mothman thing is a government experiment gone bad? That, you know, they wanted to go this dark, silent place in the middle of nowhere near this old army chemical depot. And they just wanted to test like a flying suit. So, you know, I ended my career on a very large flight test program, you know, a two-year test program. So, uh, you know, I actually had to go to the test site, set it up with the test director, schedule everything, do all the safety checks, make sure the contractor's there, you know, soup to nuts. So I had a really good feel for, for what we did, where we tested, and, and where we would do that testing. And after looking at a Google map of that area, I said, there is no way we would put anybody's life in danger with a flight suit. Not that we weren't testing flight suits at that time, but we would never hold uh, any type of, of a test, top secret or not, in that area. It, it, it ruled it out. They would not let it go. I mean, to the mo and they wanted me to get them on right path, but I couldn't because they didn't meet the deadline. I had it all greased, but they needed like 60 days so they could run it through the Pentagon. They didn't get there in time. So I wound up getting them into the mound nuclear plant where the walls are 18 foot thick. Hmm. Now, if you can get a hold of that premiere episode, Oh, and the production company loved it because it's creepy, dripping water, former, <laughs> former site of nuclear research and production. And it was gorgeous. So they hand me this folder and I start flipping through it. And it's all this government testing. It's the Mothman. It's I, and I said, it isn't. It's not going to happen. So unfortunately, and I love Gates and I love its production company. I love the people I work with. They frankenbited my appearance there. They asked me these questions. And then when they played it back, it's a conglomeration of nip and tuck to make it sound like I said, oh, yeah, it's highly possible this was a government program and they did testing and it was Mothman. That's Pat Preston's number one complaint about certain entities in the field. He's been cut a few times himself. Yeah, so, I was once on one show yeah, sure. where they were asking me how common are, you know, onboard experiences in California, how many per year? I said, oh, you know, there might be hundreds, perhaps even a thousand per year. And they clipped it. So I said, thousands per day. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second, I did not say that. <laughs> like, oh. Well, to fit, Preston, I empathize with you, but I'll, I'll conclude the story. So this is playing in, in, in real time. And bef before they introduce me, Josh Gates goes, well, now we're going to bring on my, and this is a quote, 
we're now going to bring on my right pat guy. So I look at my wife, she looks at me, and I go, who's this right pat guy? I I mean, I'm the guy that filmed. Well, they never told me that I made the cut. Just, you know, I knew nothing about it. So next thing I know, it's me. I'm Joshua <laughs> Gates, right pat guy. They play my scene. The phone rings. It's my son. He goes, I'm watching it. Dad, you didn't say that, did you? <laughs> oh, no. Because my son, my son knows government testing. He, he's been working in that field for the last 20 years, and he knows it's not possible. And I would never – I go, son, rest assured, I never said that. He goes, good, man. <laughs> and then he hung up. So it, in other words, it was so incredulous what they had done that not even my son would believe it. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. yeah, I like to. I'm always very them. careful when I get asked by the TV folks because I've been burned a few times. I was one, on one show, and this is when I kind of learned a very difficult lesson. <laughs> and I'm not going to name the show, but <laughs> they said, "Okay, here's your questions." I'm like, "Oh, okay," you know. And I'm young, eager, you know, on TV. Wow, how, how fun is this? And cool. He said, and "Here's your answers," and I'm like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> And I looked at the answers, and they were roughly what I would have said anyway. So I'm like, oh, gosh. But, you know, I didn't realize. I was, and they did a lot of B-roll. And I'm like, oh, B-roll. If, if, for anyone who's ever done TV, you know what that is. Pretending to type, walking in your front door out, and just doing all this kind of acting. I mean, it's acting. Let's face it. <laughs> so, yeah. For the record, for the record, Ancient Aliens, and Expedition X have never invited me back. <laughs> <laughs> I did Expedition X with Josh Gates. I never got to meet him, but I was pleasantly surprised with how they handled the whole thing. This is he, he's nicer. Josh is nicer in person even than he shows up on TV. I uh, met Roswell. I met him, chatted with him for several minutes. I really, really enjoyed uh, him. He's a great guy. Yep. That's awesome. Oh, very cool. Okay. Well, moving along then. So you put out these three amazing books. So what? at what point did you decide, you know what? This is the stuff that needs to be talked about. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to write a book. Because that's a big step. I mean, writing a book is a huge labor, as I'm sure you know, having done it three times. <laughs> so how did, how did this all you know, begin for you? kind of by chance, um, I think it was 2012, 13, I was now retired. I had this long burning interest in the topic. I said, I'm going to a UFO conference. And I found the International UFO Congress uh, in Fountain Hills and said, what a great lineup. I got to go. So uh, I went there and I met a lot of great people. And to kind of preference to talk about Victoria's Secret Truth, the first person that I met there was Victoria and her then boyfriend. And they sat next to me, just random. You know, now if you've been there, there's 2000 seats. So they sit next to me and then there's a break and her boyfriend turns to her and says, can I tell him? I've never met these people before in my life, ever and ever. Hmm. And she says, tell him what? And he says, well, about your experience. And she goes, we don't even know him. He goes, can I tell you something about my girlfriend? I'm like, man, as long as it's not, as long as it's not kinky, you know, we got we got ten minutes to kill before you know Doctor Lear shows up. So go for it. 
And he goes, um, my girlfriend uh, is a contactee and she's been on a spaceship and, you know, she might have been impregnated by aliens. Now, I never met these people. <laughs> it's my first hour at a UFO conference yeah, yeah. and I'm already being told that this woman has got alien children. <laughs> wow. So, so that's, that is a true story of how I met Victoria. But going to the book, now you can imagine it's a baptism by fire. I'm getting that kind of exposure to these kinds of stories. And my imagination is lit. And then I'm watching all the speakers and they were so kind to answer my questions and things like that. So, you know, I was, I was really, really into it. So the one of the next, the follow on here, I said, well, I got to do this again. And it was at that point that I had just briefly met Jen Stein. And uh, in the interim, in the interim, um, before I went to the next uh, UFO Congress, uh, I went to uh, England and I, I, I um, investigated Rendlesham. I went to Rendlesham Forest oh, and wow. I went all through there. And that's, that's covered in my, my, that story is covered in my first book, my, my going to Rendlesham, because I'm a hands-on guy. Boots on the ground, hands on. Put my finger in, yeah, <laughs> put my finger into the hole. So I did the Rendlesham thing, and no, that I'm it's all excited. So I go back and I meet Jen Stein, and uh, a friend of hers invites me to a dinner. And when I get there, there were some luminaries like uh, Paul Davids uh, sat next to me. Jen was on the other side uh, of of him, and uh, some other people who were well-known in the community. In fact, uh, the, that photograph of that dinner is in my first book, so you can look it up. And then I didn't know at the time about, you know, that Travis Walton was on the other side of Jen for that dinner. So dinner breaks up, and uh, everyone's talking about, you know, what they're going to do for the last day and all that stuff and, you know, what's happening afterwards. And I said, hey, I'm going to find Travis Walton's abduction site. And she wow. said, well, you know, how are you going to find it? And I said, well, I've been researching it for a couple of years. I think I can get within 100 yards of it. Yeah. And out of the blue, and I didn't really know Jen that well. <laughs> and then out of the blue, she said, you know, I think I know somebody. If you're actually going to do that, she goes, you're really going to do that? I said, yeah. I said, I want to go up there, take lots of photographs. And then she found out that I'm a photographer. You know, I had a fancy Canon 20D camera with all the lenses. And <laughs> she said, well, this could work out. And I said, she said, oh, I think I know somebody that could help you find the place. I said, really? She goes, yeah, wait a minute. Next thing she yeah. goes, Travis, get over here. <laughs> He might know. <laughs> what? So Travis, go, you come trundle on over. You know Travis. He's really cool. Yeah. He goes, hey, Jen, what's up? She goes, look at This guy's a photographer. We need, we need still photographs from your site on those tree trunks that show that unusual growth. Are you free next week? He goes, kind of. Well, <laughs> I want you to, to work with Ray here to meet up there in Heber and then take him to your site and you show him where those trees are and he's going to take photographs for us. So long story short, I'm up in Heber. It's snowing. It's at elevation. Travis is still at the conference. So it's Monday morning. You know, I've left the conference. I'm up in Heber. I'm in my hotel. I've got his phone number from Jen and him. Yeah. Call me Monday. 
He doesn't want to come up because he says it's snowing up there. Well, I lie to him. <laughs> and I go, yeah. I go, Tra I, Travis, we have a dusting, just a dusting. <laughs> I'm looking at four inches of snow on my rental car, and there's more coming down. I said, it'll be fine. Now, you know, it's like a 30-minute drive from Heber through a slippery forest, getting up higher into elevation on unpaved road and mud roads. So I convinced Travis to show up the next day. <laughs> Travis Travis gets in my rented four by four and we're slip sliding, you know, oh, no. through the snow. Uh, the whole story is in book one photographs with him uh, with wild horses at the backdrop, us at his, his site, uh, photographs of the, of the trees, uh, of those tree rings and my little science experiment. And that information wound up in Jen Stein's movie, Travis Walton. Nice. That's uh, cool. Which I saw and was excellent. Nice. It was very yes. well. Yes. So I'm the tree stump guy. Those are, <laughs> those, right. are, those are my photographs. And some of my work has been used in, in other things to <laughs> wow. kind of prove a theory that, you know, there was indeed a saucer there. So <laughs> yeah. what happened is, is this thing happens with me and Travis. And now I'm on it. And no, Travis afterwards, um, you know, we had dinner at the Mexican restaurant. Uh, he comes back to my hotel room. I give him a cup of coffee. I'm kind of showing him the pictures we took and, you know, getting his thing on it. And he invites me up to Snowflake to meet some of his buds, but it was getting late and I didn't want to do the drive. And so, you know, it was unfortunate because I had to leave the next morning on a flight. So I made my apologies and, and he left. And I'm now going home and I'm thinking, man, I've got stuff here that I know people would love to hear and see. You know, I've got this proof that there was this flying saucer. These rings on these trees are growing uh, exponentially larger, pointing towards the area where this thing was. And as you go around this ring, that's the way it was on all these trees. And I just went, this has got to get out. And, and then... Um, you know, other things happened. You know, I had already done the Rendlesham thing. I knew all about Wright Pat, and I thought, well, that's a good chapter. You know, I had um, um, the thing with Travis, and and I thought, this is it. And so I just sat down, and it was amazing how quickly it came off my fingertips. It was like I was born <laughs> to do this. Yeah. Wow. Inspiration is wonderful, isn't it? That's it is. And I, I can imagine what, what, what Preston has done. He's got like 5,360 books out there. <laughs> no, no, not quite. 31. You know, you know how, you know, when you're reading a really good book, how fun that is. Writing it is twice the fun. I mean, it's the difference between listening to a song and singing it. I mean, it's just yeah. wild when it's coming out and you're like, wow, you're in it. It's so much fun. And it's exciting. Well, I've mentioned before how inspirational um, UFOs or Topanga Canyon was. And, and do you know that I got to go back? I didn't tell you about this. I actually had unfinished business and I found a local to tour me around. It was awesome because we were going through some of the valleys and stuff outside oh, yeah. of the, the, the yeah. canyon there about the possible sites, spent the day. And if I ever redo the book, I'm going to publish some of those pictures about going back to Topanga. And it was all because of you. That's awesome. Hey, that is awesome. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. It yeah, really I is. There. I always kind of yeah. had dreams of take, doing, 
filling up a tour bus and just taking people like, look, are you up on landed yeah. here? Yeah. Yeah. Take me. <laughs> All right. You get a free pass. When, when. I'm going, man. <laughs> All right. So I know you have other, some amazing stories because you gave me a little note here about one, which I'm curious about um, where you had a possible MIB encounter near a top secret air force building or strange vehicles at UFO sites. Um, multi- <laughs> it turns out, turns out it's, it's, it's multiple MIB one, one story, <laughs> one story never got published and another one I'm going to hold tight. Um, yeah. Um, Wright Patterson air force base has two golf courses that I think I might've mentioned maybe our pre-talk, but they have uh, one's called Prairie trace and the other one's called twin base. And then they have a nine hole course called the West course. Now, um, Prairie Trace has uh, two holes, nine and ten, that border. They are the western border of the FTD campus, now called NASIC, National Air and Space um, Intelligence Center. So I regularly play that golf course. Many times I walk it, depending on the temperature. It's too hot. I take a cart. On this day, I had a cart, but my mission that day, should you decide to accept it, Mr. Phelps, <laughs> was there is an eight grave graveyard that sits adjacent to the parking lot of the Foreign Technology Division. And I'm calling it FTD because everyone's familiar with that. And I know it's NASIC. So my mission that day, besides playing a, a nice round of golf, was to take my cell phone camera and get a picture of that graveyard because I needed it for a presentation or something. So while I was there and I had taken the picture as I was leaving in my golf cart, it literally is 35 yards from the fairway. As I'm coming back, I see this guy in the late May heat where it's 90 degrees out, maybe a little cooler under, under the trees. And he's dressed just like a men in black. Hmm. And I'm thinking, well, that's the intelli- one of the intelligence buildings on the base, FTD. Everybody knows that. And here's a guy dressed like a classic men in black standing next to the campus. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, they got to hang out in the daytime somewhere. <laughs> Why not in the building? It's like the old Nick Pope double bluff. Well, of course we'll put them in the intelligence building. Nobody would suspect they're in the intelligence building. <laughs> and there he was. And I, I went, uh, I, I got to have a conversation with this guy. So I do. <laughs> uh, I'm impressed. <laughs> and all of that dialogue is in the first book. And now I got to get the book. Yeah, of course you do. Okay. Yeah, and and okay. in in the in the book is a is a photograph from a distance of this guy because I thought, well, wow. I can't I can't you know do that because that would not be good. But if I took it with his back turned from a distance, you wouldn't be able to tell it from a million other people. So you know if if somebody objected <laughs> like during the review process because. Um, I had to contact the uh, Air Force Literary Office in um, New York City, and I had to send them a copy, and I had to get the book approved. So I thought, well, certainly I want the story to go forward, and 
and you know, I gave them no no games. I gave them exactly the manuscript that I wanted uh, to publish, and they said, "Okay, <laughs> cool. You know, that's fine with us." So indeed, um, I had uh, this event, and I, I actually did have a follow up with them later that is not included, and and then just kind of a little a left turn. After that book was published, uh, I was in a local restaurant here where I live. And that restaurant, unfortunately, is no longer in business, although I can tell you that it was called the um, the Fox and Hounds. And they had $2 Tuesdays where you could go in and mm -hmm. get a pint of beer for two bucks. So I'm in there eating and I'm not in any special place, kind of a, in a corner. And there is a, um, a table uh, permanently attached to the floor with these big brass, you know, stanchions where you can seat about 30 people uh, mm -hmm. on both sides of it. And it's curled. So it's just one long community table. And it's a place where many people will just stand uh, with their drink because it's that high. And I noticed that there is a guy dressed as an MIB with his hat and his dark everything and the tie. And he's got his camera in a position and he's taking pictures of me hmm. in in the restaurant. So I went, hmm, mm -hmm. I gotta confront this guy. <laughs> so I go over there and, and I'm walking and he must have seen me and maybe in the glass of his the screen of his thing, and he puts the phone away and he slips it in. He goes, Hey, hey, what's yeah. up? And uh, oh nothing. I said, Man, I I just gotta tell you this. I said, I'm a flying saucer researcher have you ever heard of the men in black yeah yeah i've heard of those guys and i'm, and I'm, looking, I'm looking at one <laughs> so he doesn't deny it <laughs> and, and i'm not i'm not going to confront him about the, the photos because you know oh no no don't because yeah. he, he could have been maybe not maybe he was you know just using that as a as a mirror to look at me or whatever but that was my suspicions. And I said, uh, yes, I questioned him. You ever heard about this? Yeah. And he tells me that he's a fundraiser for a local university. And then, of course, I try to tra track it down and there is no such office, yeah. much less a person that works there. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so clearly... There was something going on. I don't know what. Was he taking my picture? Well, if he gets his jollies doing that, I guess. How long but, between you taking the the uh, graveyard pictures and that happening? What was the amount of time between those two events? Well, um, the graveyard pictures and where that guy was standing, he actually had his back to what I was doing. And how long he had his back turned, I don't know. So maybe he saw me doing it. Uh, I'm thinking of the angle. He would have to have been turned and looking over the wrought iron fence of the graveyard because um, he was on, he would have been on the northwest side of it. I was on the southeast side of it. So that fence is about four foot and there are some um, uh, arpovitis trees yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, behind there so his vision would have been blocked somewhat so if he saw me it was probably either going or coming but not actually the act of shooting because of the angle that I took it from uh, yeah. basically I think I'd have been behind those arpovitis trees um, but I would say from the moment I left um, the graveyard to the time I saw him was about three seconds 
He yeah. literally, he yeah. literally was in ten, I, within ten yards of yeah. the graveyard. You realize so when, that they have cameras everywhere in those places. Oh, they do. I'm, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure I was on camera. You were doing what you were doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure of it, but but I'm also sure that I wasn't breaking any law by by shooting a picture well, of the graveyard. I just wanted to know they're they're more than curious about everything. Okay, they they have to know everything. It's a thing, and uh, they were just trying to figure out why you did what you did. That's. I asked him if I could if I could take a picture of him. I actually asked the neck, I take a picture <laughs> of you. And he goes, Why? And I said, you know, I could put it in a book and become rich and famous. Yeah. And he, he said, uh, no, I don't think that would be a good idea here, because obviously you're working yeah. in an intelligence capacity. And of course I, you know, didn't take a picture of him. Yeah, I'm not so nice. I, I, I took I've it from black in my life. Yeah. And um, it got to the point where they quit wearing the suits. They started trying to look like everyday people, but I'm psychic and I knew who they were. And I started tracking them and even snuck up on them a couple of times with food to give them. And uh, <laughs> like the banana in, in that uh, Eddie Murphy movie where he sticks oh the banana in the, in the tailpipe and yeah. Uh, yeah. gives the officers yeah. food. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, um, I was constantly filming them, and I was tailing them. And Preston's got all the film of it. Okay, I'm not getting joking around. I drove them insane. Okay, and uh, they finally. Now was that in Florida or where you yes, live now? In Florida, I'd in do Florida. it now if I could get my. They they won't come close enough to do that to me anymore. They're a little bit nervous about coming too close to me now. That was a an impressive moment in my life. What could you do? Before. What could you do with with that information now? Um, I, I'm not stupid. I'm never, ever, <laughs> Preston has it. That's it. And it's locked up. You can't get it. Nobody can get it. And, well, um, Preston, you're in danger then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I keep watch over him too. It, it is uh, serious stuff. Yeah, I know. I know there's like up to death. death. I'm not I'm worried. Yeah. I'm willing to go all the way with this subject. It's important. Right. People need to know. Right. Yeah. But my first. Well, that's a fascinating story, Dolly. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was that's, eight that's, years old. My very first time with an MIB coming home from school. He had a trench coat on that day. He was carrying a cane. My best friend was with me. We're walking home, and I would walk her home and then go out to where I lived. And I'm I'm a weird person. I carried a dentist the menace lunchbox. Okay, it's a long story. Anyways, and he starts talking to me about my lunchbox, and I looked at him. Now I'm already trained to know when to book it. Okay, and I grabbed my friend by the arm and said. Run him! We poof, we ran, and he tried to catch us, but he couldn't. We're little gazelles, you know. And I went home and told my dad about it, my mom about it, and next thing you know, I've got security on me twenty four seven, even at school. And uh, my dad said, "That's MIB. That's Men in Black." He used those wow. words, and that's in the late sixties. Well, we and, know they watch contactees and researchers yeah. both. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty. Much yeah, he said you avoid them, <laughs> avoid them, and I was like, okay, fine. He said if he had gotten his hands on you, we would have never seen you again, and that's probably true. And uh, so, but yeah, and, and and now I'm older and a lot wiser and a lot smarter, hopefully. And uh, I decided to taunt these guys; they were driving me crazy, and uh, so I got them back. How's that run thing working out? R U N. How's that working out now? A little slower. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> we are. We are. <laughs> yeah, I would need a lot of help at this point. Yeah, but yeah, I have other talents too, so you know, I don't worry about it too much. It's right. just weird. Ray, okay. I know we're we're getting to the last twenty minutes of the show, and I want to give you a chance to talk about your third book here, which just came out, which with this awesome title. 
Swamp gas. gas. What made you think of that? <laughs> Seriously. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a funny guy. Um, the the uh, genesis of, of all this is, is um, I live near, uh, not too far from Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and the community is just filled with retired military folks uh, just with magnificent stories. And, um, yeah. you know, when it, it, you two are like a perfect example of, of a, a point I'm going to make next, when you live in this community and you're a UFO researcher, people will come forward to you at all times on the street in Kroger's uh, emails, wherever mm-hmm. and say, Hey, I've got a story. Would you like to hear it? Yeah. And so if, if I have the time I usually do, cause I'm just a curious person. So um, I had gotten just a grain of a hint that there was an individual who might have an interesting story was stationed in Michigan during the 1966 swamp gas UFO (laughs) flap that was made famous by Dr. J. Allen Hynek and his explanation that these dozens and dozens of sightings by highly credible people was nothing more than rotting vegetation that had spontaneously ignited and did all of these fabulous things. So I had heard that. And then to make a long story short, I basically ran him down and uh, who was a, a person who retired as a full colonel in the Air Force, that's one step below general. He was a fighter pilot with over 5,000 hours in the cockpit. Uh, he has done remarkable things, all of which are chronicled in the book, along with the publication of his official military records, the DD-214, the DD-214 of his wingman that day. And in 1966, they were on five-minute alert. Now, what that, what does that mean? In Michigan, Selfridge Air Force Base, which is very near Mount Clements and only 20 miles from where I was born and raised in the city of Detroit, they were expecting the Russians to bring their bombers and and other hardware over the pole, over Canada, down to Michigan to bomb whatever. And at that time, uh, cities like Detroit, which were industrial cities, which we would need for war production if it ever came to that, those cities were ringed with nuclear-tipped missiles. They were, as you know, nuclear stuff attracts extraterrestrials. So in 1966, there were dozens of these batteries of, of you know, nuclear, nuclear-armed missiles ready to go. And the squadron, the 71st Fighter Interceptor Squadron that Colonel Carroll and Bob Nicholson, his wingman that day, were assigned to, their job would have been to leave, go north up through Michigan, and intercept those Russian nuclear bombers. And those F-106s were armed with nuclear bombs. So the, if once the, once the missiles were expended, their job was to set that nuclear missile into that fleet, get the hell out of there, trigger it, and let a nuclear bomb blow up the rest of the Russian nuclear fleet. So they're on five-minute alert. That means they have to get airborne in five minutes. The klaxon goes off. Now, they have no idea when the klaxon goes off what they're going to be looking for. Their training tells them they're heading north, and we're about to be bombed by the Russians. 
So they get up in the air. After a few minutes, Battle Creek comes on and says, all right, here's the mission. Uh, we have it on uh, very good authority that there is an unidentified flying object or objects in our immediate vicinity. You're going to find it. You're going to get it on visual. You're going to get it on radar. And then we will advise you what to do. In other words, you might be using those missiles. So they get up there in, in, in their 90-minute flight. They actually were vectored about and had multiple visual sightings of a flying saucer, both Colonel Carroll and Bob Nicholson. At the time, they were, they were Air Force captains. They had multiple radar confirmations. They actually saw the bright phosphorus dot on their radar screen. Now, they did not get it on the infrared, which we discuss in the book and the amazement of Colonel Carroll and what his thoughts are on that. So here are two guys, captains, F-106s, a fighter jet, which was our, our top fighter jet for 20 years, unparalleled in performance. They go out, they're um, Mach 1.3 chasing this thing. They get eyes on multiple occasions. Uh, at one point, um, their radar is giving them information uh, about the airspeed uh, of this object. And at one point, Colonel Carroll tells me, the feedback I'm getting on my radar tells me that this thing that I've been chasing and couldn't catch at Mach 1.3 is now waiting for me in the sky. Okay. He hmm. said, I think, I think it's, it, it stopped. So the whole story of what they did from the moment they left to their uh, airborne adventure, to the debriefing, to what happened uh, with uh, their interrogations afterwards, uh, how that impacted their careers, how that impacted their mindset. Wow. I interviewed Colonel Carroll for over 30 hours. So 30 hours of video and I sent you a three-minute clip, and if we're going to play that, which I hope oh, we can, yes, we got time. I think let's put it up now. Let me let, let me uh, uh, let me cue it up for your listeners here, real <laughs> okay. quick. Right. Um, because his testimony was spread out over thirty different recordings, I wanted to put an encapsulation of what happened to him that day in a single location. So I wrote a script because at this point. Uh, Colonel Carroll is not far from dying from cancer. And uh, mm -hmm. I put his story in a script. He edited it. He approved it. And then I came over and we did this in two takes. Now, you'll see a little jitter maybe somewhere in the middle because he, you know, uh, the cancer in his treatments, uh, his mouth was very dry. So there's no change of the script. We didn't change any meetings. It, it just that uh, uh, the first half of one, the second half of the other was really cool. And he's going to tell you about what happened to him that day. Okay. Now, again, you can find the books on Amazon. And if you're good, you can go online to the Air Force Museum, the United States Air Force Museum website, go to their bookstore, and you can get autographed copies of the books. Oh, another wow. ex another yeah. exclusive for you, Mr. Dennett. <laughs> kind of kind of paying it forward and backwards at the same time. So if you can roll that video, I'm sure your audience would love to see it. Yes, absolutely. All right, let me just pull it up. I've got it all queued up here. Now I apologize to 
anyone who can't quite hear the sound as loud as we'd like it, but I'm going to do my best. Right. Let me just pull it up here. Here we go. Okay, let me just get this started. And we shall, oops. Here we are. Hello, my name is Gary Carroll, and I'm a retired United States Air Force Colonel. Uh, and from January of 1965 until 1967, January also, I was a pilot assigned to the 71st Interceptor Squadron at Selfridge Air Force Base in Michigan. Our interceptors were F-106A and B-model aircraft, um, which was the most current of the new interceptors in the United States Air Force at the time. Um, in March of 1966, I was on five-minute alert with another captain in the squadron, Bob Nicholson. Around 3 p.m. in the afternoon in question, we were scrambled to intercept unidentified flying objects or object that had been detected or observed and report to, reported to Air Force authorities. With myself as a flight leader and Bob Nicholson as my wingman, we were vectored after takeoff around southeastern Michigan by the Battle Creek Control Center in order to locate the unidentified target or targets. During the course of our approximately nine-minute mission, we were we both had visual and radar contact of the UFO, or at least three different on at least three different occasions. Our longest visual contact was nearly 60 seconds. Radar contact was tenuous with radar lock-ons lasting only seconds per incident. And our infrared detection system, the F-106's other search and track system, did not return any data at all. Uh, during our longest and final uh, visual contact, Bob and I pursued a singular object at speeds up to 1.3 Mach. The pursuit ended for all practical purposes when the object made a hard left, seemingly left turn, uh, and then moved off in that direction at an incredible speed. Over the course of the past year, I have been sharing uh, details of this official encounter and many other military and significant events in my 30-year career with Ray Shermansky. Ray videotaped these interviews and is preserving them for posterity. I have authorized Ray to organize, select, and publish this information in an upcoming book. I thank you for your kind attention. All right, very cool. I hope you guys could hear that well enough. Yes. Oh, good. Wow, that's amazing, Raymond, that you, God bless him for having the courage to step forward. He was an amazing, amazing person. And uh, because of this, uh, I have some great things that he once owned and earned, which I eventually will donate uh, to a museum. I have all of his Air Force medals, the actual medals, mm -hmm. his yeah. uh, Distinguished Flying Cross, all the, the high accolades, I have his flight bag that oh, wow. he would have owned during the time 
that he did this. I have two of his flight suits. I have his dress uniform with all of his medals. And hopefully uh, someday, you know, I'll find a worthy place. I'm hoping the Air Force Museum, you know, once they, they get over this um, flying saucer phobia, <laughs> uh, that 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 you know this is the highest ranking military officer ever to come forward to say that he was essentially chasing a flying saucer. This is actually an historical person, historical moment, and you know I'm going to enjoy holding on to what you know his family gave me and what he gave me before he passed uh, until such time as we can find the right place for it for everyone to see. Yeah, well, that gives me chills. I think that deserves to be underlined, the fact that he's the highest ranking, because just think how many people are sitting on information that they can't tell or don't have the courage to talk about or you know just choose not to for whatever reason. But he did. And he chose you to help deliver his message, which is so awesome. And I have to think humbling a little bit. <laughs> I, have, I have a question about this, though. How did he feel about in the end, what was his opinion of what it was that he was seeing? Was he afraid of it? Um, what were his what was what were his thoughts about what he was dealing with? Well, he knew it wasn't of this planet because right. um, I covered this in a book too. His father was uh, one of the chief project. He was the project manager of uh, another famous airplane that they built for the Navy. And it was a long-range uh, nuclear bombing jet, so this was in his blood. And you know, during his summer sessions, he actually got to work in the factory alongside his dad and his buddies. So you know, he had this early exposure to these top super-secret planes his entire life. And he said, "Not ours." You know, the characteristics absolutely he goes and it's not theirs it ain't the russians it ain't the chinese there's there's no way and uh, there's a lot of um you know like the infrared he said look at man this if it's a chinese or russians their their exhausts are going to light up my infrared yeah, uh, he said even the friction on this thing he goes this this thing is doing mach 3 leaving me he goes there's got to be friction on that hall somewhere i should see it i've got a you know 30 or 40 mile range on my infrared i should see a dot and so he goes through the technology mm -hmm. of why it wasn't ours and uh the flight characteristics and and mm -hmm. what he saw uh he was more amazed than uh, I would say fearful because you're a jet jockey. And once you read the book, you'll understand, you know, uh, when we had the top secret plane shot out uh, of the air out of the Sea of Japan, he was a guy and a wingman that chased the MiGs back into North Korea. He escorted nuclear, Russian nuclear bombers over Iceland. He was head of Air Force's Iceland. That was their job. So I don't think fear was in this guy's jargon. Uh, it was just <laughs> amazing. He was like, you know, and he even said this was jaw dropping speed, jaw dropping performance. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I just, you know, every time I got to talk to him, I was just like, turn the recorder on and just sit back and, and, you know, it, it was like watching your favorite movie over and over again and just being filled with all this knowledge and capturing it for posterity. Absolutely. Um, I want to pop this comment up because Olivia says it was Hetty Lamar. who. That's uh, right. Yeah. She did Bluetooth. Now my brain is working. It was Bluetooth and GPS. She was the, the mother yeah, of the technology. Yeah. 
She was inventing communication systems. Yeah, communication systems. Yeah. I, I don't know about the printed circuit card. Um, I just made them. <laughs> I just designed them, laid them out, tested them. Yeah. I don't know who did that, but uh, that's a great point of trivia if indeed that is true. It All is. right, and here's a question from Guy Merritt, which is just kind of a funny personal question. <laughs> he says, did you ever eat at the Tropics in Dayton? I played the piano there, seriously, in 1971. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That was my place to get a Mai Tai. Ah, well, there you go, Guy. <laughs> Maybe you, you listened to Guy playing the piano there. Who knows? Probably. <laughs> I also just want to give a quick shout out to my sister-in-law, Christine. Hi, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm sorry I miss her so much. I just had to do that. Okay, well, we've still got another five or so minutes. Um, so I don't know what else you want to talk about, Ray. I got something. Book. Okay. Let's, let's talk about the first ever UFO conference coming to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Absolutely. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. Yeah, there's a, yes. uh, a small group. They tried to get this off the ground twice before, and mm -hmm. there were some inherent problems there. So they regrouped, and they had the right guy sitting at the table, and that guy said, hey, there's this local guy. He wrote these books. He's connected to the community. Why don't you have him out to breakfast? So I met the group, and found out what they were doing. Then I met them a couple more times and found out, you know, where their mistakes were. So uh, I joined this group, very small group. And basically where it is, is the Hope Hotel in the 90s served as the location where the Dayton Peace Accord was signed that ended the Bosnian War. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. And history there. Okay. that was a special place built to house all of the State Department people and, and you know, Slobodan Malavalak and, you know, the guy was eventually, you know, uh, put up for on criminal charges. All those guys who signed the peace treaty were there. They stayed there. And then the property was then sold off to a private entity. But the hotel and the conference center that all one massive, beautiful unit are on federal property. Their address is Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Nice. Fortunately, they're sequestered in such a way that you do not have to drive past the guard gate to get to the hotel conference complex. Oh, so nice. everybody who visits will just simply make a right. It, when you see the gate, you make the right-hand turn. Because if you get to the gate and you don't have the right uh, credentials, they're going to turn you around and go, no, no, it's, it's back there. How many so, people are going to be able to go? All the employees at Wright Pat just put up a little flyer on the greasy spoon. <laughs> there, are, there are actually twenty five thousand employees here, and and their contractors. So there's you know a hundred thousand connected to the base somehow. Mm -hmm. um, right now, you know we want to keep it boutique because some of the large conferences, and I love them. I love you know uh, the others uh, because I spoke at a couple of them, so that was pretty cool. But we're looking at 500. We'd, oh, like, to, wow. we'd like to do 500. The okay. venue, if, if we set it up in in um, banquet mode, where you know tables of 10 people, comfortably seated, uh, two massive screens, very large room, then 
we can do we can between 450 and 500 we're gonna you know in fact we have a meeting there tomorrow we're gonna do one of our walkthroughs and you know click things off with with our, our uh, yardsticks so about 450 to 500 okay. we're gonna have it we'll have an opening Friday where we'll let the vendors come in and set up on Friday in the afternoon then about six o'clock we'll have a cocktail hour and meet the speakers kind of thing, have them, because there's a beautiful place called Packies. And if you GPS it, you do not want to GPS the Hope Hotel because that'll try to take you onto the base. GPS Packies Bar and Grill, and that mm -hmm. takes you to the right-hand turn you need to make. <laughs> okay. So, but Packies is a nice, massive place. So it'll be a, a great place to have a little cocktail hour there. Then what we would do is, is we're going to invite senior leadership from the base. Hopefully the base commander will come in. They'll say, hello, how are you doing? Um, uh, welcome everybody to the base. Uh, again, we'll have some of the speakers there to mingle. We'll have a dinner, kind of a informal maybe buffet thing. I'll do about a 30 minute keynote speech. And right now the working title of that speech is Hunting Hangar 18. Right. Okay. Kind of give you guys a clue. And then we're going to have four speakers on Saturday, four speakers on Sunday. Uh, we're going to have a, a Saturday dinner. It'll be a dinner and a movie. And uh, there are some famous uh, UFO movies, uh, documentary types or others that we're considering. But it'll be a freebie movie, obviously pay-as-you-go dinner, uh, beverages that you can, you know, if you want liquor, you can buy it there. And uh, other things, we're... we're Still contemplating whether or not we want to have an experience or session there or not, experience session there or not, and um, whether or not we're going to have panel sessions. But we have, as such, only four speakers a day so that people can mingle with the speakers, have time to speak with them at the desk, get their autographs, buy their books, uh, do whatever, rather than, you know, put seven speakers on and then, you know, as a consumer, mm -hmm. you miss everything. We want everybody to see everybody and have time to speak with their favorites and, and chat with them. Do you have your speakers lined up? Yes, I, I have five speakers lined up. They've all made commits. And I have uh, two more that I'm awaiting. Press. And uh, just got rejected today by a major speaker. Oh. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid that, that um, we're beyond that for, for this iteration. <laughs> and, and, and I've got to tell you, I've got to be, I'll, I'll be out, up front with you. I have vetted all of these speakers through the years, mm -hmm. okay? And the fact that I haven't vetted you just by the nature of my process, it wouldn't work because I have dealt with all these people, people like uh, Preston who have done endorsements for my book, uh, you know, the Paul Davids of the world, the Yvonne Smiths, uh, Nick Popes, that, they're all people that I vetted. You saw some of those photographs. Well, I can tell you that some of those people are under consideration uh, or are invitees, uh, you know, at this conference. So sorry, I apologize, but, uh, you know, you, you haven't jumped. So what are you doing uh, that weekend in September, Preston? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure I have something going on at some point. But no, Do you, do you ever travel? Um, I try to do a few conferences each year. You know, the last few years have been real rough for obvious reasons. Yeah. But I'm trying to get back into the swing of things. It's okay. a lot of work, as you know. I mean, it is. I'll send you a personal thing offline. All right. Very cool. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you. I'll let you know. I'll let you know uh, who our commits are, and um, I'll um, after my. I'll do this a couple of days after my committee meeting tomorrow. 
I'll get back to you. All right. Well, we're going to have to close up the show, Ray. I just Super. want to let everyone know here are his three books. I hope you're working on another one soon. By the way, Swamp Gas My Ass is averaging 4.8 stars on Amazon. Not a single one or two check. Three checks, mostly five checks. So awesome that it's being very well received and doing so well. Congratulations. Thank you. So everyone go out there and check out these amazing books. He's doing fantastic research. He's really a researcher's researcher, the kind of guy you can trust. And so I'm really honored, Ray, that you agreed to come on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. It's Ray. about time, Preston. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Uh, we have to do this again sometime next year. Absolutely. Yeah. I want you to hang around after we sign off. Okay. Um, Everybody, thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming to see the light gate tonight. If you missed it, come back and watch it again and again. It's always up uh, for watching. And uh, I hope you all have a great week. Until next Monday, we're signing off from the beautiful city of New Orleans at 107.7 FM, the United Public Radio Network, and the UFO Paranormal Radio Network at 105.3 FM. See you later, everybody. Bye.